Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. On today's episode, our guest is Saket Soni. He's a New Orleans-based labor organizer and he helped hundreds of men who were lured in from India escape what was one of the largest human trafficking cases in modern American history. Crazy, right? This happened in 2006, right after Hurricane Katrina. And Saket just released his book, which chronicles this unbelievable journey. It's titled The Great Escape, A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. And what a crazy, unbelievable story. Such an important story. And I highly recommend you check that book out. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's wow. No words. Anyways, it's going to be a great episode because we're going to go really in-depth and really talk about what happened and... and his journey and the journey of these men and America and, and just, yeah, we go all in. So check it out. And if you're enjoying the Brown history podcast and you're enjoying the Instagram page and everything in between, and you want to support, consider being a patron. You just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Your help really goes a long way. Like it really does. And, um, yeah, let's get this started. And here we go. That's perfect. Nice to meet you, Essen. Yeah. Nice, nice to meet you. I loved your book. I did not know such a cool guy like you existed in. Oh, in the you're world. so generous. Thank it you. It was. I. I honestly didn't want to read it, but then when I read the first chapter, I couldn't stop reading it. It is such a moving, incredible story. It blew me away. Uh, it's a story that just covers uh, American greed, exploitation, government treachery. I don't want to give spoilers away, but it's also about the American dream, but also about the American nightmare. So. I wanted to know, I guess, uh, for our listeners who probably haven't read the book yet, if you can give us some context and how you got involved behind this. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for all the kind words. That's that's amazing. Thank you for reading it. Um, you know, the context is really that um, I'm a labor organizer and mm-hmm. I was living in um, New Orleans. Uh, I got there right after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, Although my story really starts when I moved from uh, India to the United States. Um, I uh, am from New Delhi originally, and I got to uh, the United States on a full scholarship. Uh, I'm probably the only kid from India uh, whose parents let him go to America to study theater, (laughs) a theater and English major, and uh, was studying theater when... Uh, when I uh, missed an immigration deadline and became undocumented. And um, I didn't think much of it, but I, um, uh, uh, you you know, I I thought it was a problem that was easily fixable. It turned out it wasn't. And then 9-11 happened. And that that experience really turned me from um, theater and a life in the arts to community organizing. So I was working in Chicago as a community organizer when, Hurricane Katrina hit um, Mississippi, Mm -hmm. and I watched TV in Chicago and watched as um, New Orleans was flooded and watched this, you know, astonishing scene of um, in the United States of America, you know, people being, um, you know, uh, rescued from rooftops, waiting for weeks to be rescued. Um, from a city that was flooded. And I went down to New Orleans to help. I intended to go for 10 days. Um, I ended up um, living there 16 years. And um, and the story of this book starts in New Orleans after um, the Gulf Coast had turned into the world's largest construction site. And the repairs, which were, you know, uh, which were repairs of post-war proportions. I mean, there were a million homes to be rebuilt just in Louisiana, a million more in Mississippi, schools, streets, you name it. Every building uh, was broken up, torn up, um, and needed to be repaired. And all these repairs uh, were being carried out by immigrant workers, workers from um across the country and from other countries. I had started a small labor rights nonprofit and um, was protecting workers as I could. 
And my mornings would start at 5.30. My days would start 5.30 in the morning um, under a 60-foot-tall monument to Robert E. Lee, this huge um, statue of Robert E. Lee placed upon a long column. And underneath it, in its shadow, were hundreds and hundreds of black and brown workers who were gathered there looking for work. It, that that place, Lee Circle, had become the hiring hub um, for repairs all across the Gulf Coast. And every morning, um, these contractors would pull up in buses and um, the workers would get into these buses. I'd clamber on with them and we'd go out to dark and distant corners of the Gulf Coast and I'd watch as these workers would rebuild the Gulf Coast and um, and I'd protect them in any way I could through my uh, through my tiny nascent nonprofit. Mm. That's what I was doing when I got a mysterious midnight phone call um, that led me to one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern U.S. history. And that's what the book is about. So let's move forward with that. You get a phone call, this mysterious phone call, and it's an it's an Indian man with an Indian accent. And uh, I'm not sure if he speaks Hindi or not, but he clearly is Indian. And and it's really interesting because when I'm sure when we think of labor, cheap labor in America, we think of uh, Hispanic or we think of Latinos, but we never think of Indian. When we think of cheap labor, we think of uh, Dubai or migrant when it comes to Indians. So when you took the call, what was the call asking you? or a requesting from you? Yeah, it was just the strangest phone call I'd received um, in my life. I was um, I was actually in an unheated car um, in the middle of the night trying to help a worker. You know, when you're a labor organizer, your basic job is to solve workers' problems. And that night, um, I still remember it was the night of my 29th birthday. And... Um, I was sitting there in a car late at night. My parents called from India, from Delhi, and I couldn't take the call. I sent them to voicemail um, because I was at work. And at work meant I was trying to help uh, a Honduran day laborer ransom his kidnapped nephew. That was the problem I was trying to solve. And so this was a stakeout. I was in this unheated car and, um, you know, it was a, a, a a kind of noir scene right out of a novel uh, with a with a kidnapper um, and a ransom that needed to be carried out and a hostage exchange. And, uh, and, and here I was in this car and the phone was ringing. I was sending my parents to voice to voicemail because I, I was just too busy to talk to them. And I, I was imagining them on the other side of the world in Delhi, um, you know, upset that I was once mm. again, you know, sending to, them to voicemail. It's all I ever did when they called because I was so busy. And and the next caller was um, calling from the 228 area code. This was this was the part of Mississippi, the Gulf Coast, that had been flattened by Hurricane Katrina. And um, and I was busy, you know, ransoming this uh, this kid from from this kidnapper. Um, the stakeout worked. We were, you know, we, we managed to retrieve the um, uh, my Honduran friend's, um, you know, kidnapped nephew. I went to, you know, I went home and I, I allowed myself a small glass of celebratory whiskey, you know, mm. a, a really terrible whiskey I used to drink at the time called Bushmills. Uh, and I knocked it back and nearly collapsed. I was I hadn't slept in three days. I was so tired. And the phone rang again. And it was once again, this, this 228 area code. I picked up and to my astonishment, it was a man who had just arrived into the United States from India. He refused to tell me his name, but I could tell that he was from India from the way he said my name. Everybody in the United States says socket. Even I do when I'm in the U.S. But back home in India, we say socket. And that's what he said. Are you socket? Then he said it first, you know, in English and then in mm. Hindi. And um, and then we had a quick phone call in Hindi. And, um, and 
he wouldn't tell me his name. He wouldn't tell me where he was, but he said he needed help. And he was pleading with me um, to help him. Uh, and, and I was wondering what on earth a man was doing um, just arrived from India into the ruins of uh, the 228 area code. I would get phone calls from U.S. born workers, black and white. And I would get phone calls from, as you said, Latino workers um, from all around the world who were working. But I never got calls from uh, from workers from India. And there he was. Well, it turned out he was one of 500 Indian workers who had been brought from India to the U.S. to work for a large-scale Mississippi oil rig builder. Um, and um, and this man and a few other callers uh, put me on the hunt for these workers, and I found them. And it turned out they were uh, among 500 workers brought over in one of the largest human trafficking schemes. Wow. First off, your life is very stressful. Stressful, uh, yes. Yeah. Full, of, uh, f- full of problems, big and small. But it's yeah. very rewarding, you know. I hope so. Number two, um, uh, I have listeners from all over the world. And the way America works, I'm, I'm by the way, based in Canada. You're the in Toronto, I'm, right? Toronto, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Are you from uh, Toronto originally? moved to Montreal when I was like nine months and then lived my whole life in Montreal. And I just recently moved to Toronto. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Have you been? Uh, I have always wanted to go uh, largely for the um, for the South Asian food in, in Toronto. It's pretty good. It's <laughs> Which pretty I good. hear is very good. Yeah. You know what? I wanted to talk about food, but I guess I'll talk about that after. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's first of all, as I said, your life is so stressful and unstable. It's probably the like the opposite of what any Indian parents would want for their son. <laughs> well, you know, my parents are incredibly supportive of me, but when I announced in Delhi that I wanted to be a theater major um, and, and and study literature and theater, uh, they were just about as distraught as I have ever seen them in my life. They, they pleaded with me, begged me to think about uh, myself and think about uh, you know, do theater on the weekends, but but become something else. You know, um, be an architect, be a, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 you know. But but then the interesting thing is when I uh, when I got a scholarship to the U.S., I I think they thought, well, okay, maybe this English and theater thing could work. I mean, maybe it'll be hard for a few years, but but maybe you know, he'll work in some university and that'll be stable and he'll be able to do what he, what he loves. And they've always been incredibly supportive. I, I did theater, uh, in Chicago. Um, uh, I was just sort of incredibly poor, you know, as I did it. And then, uh, and then I became undocumented and that was even worse. I, I ran a, uh, I ran a theater company of immigrants and refugees and political asylum seekers, um, we were all these undocumented immigrants doing theater in Chicago. And then I became a community organizer. So unlike um, most Indian parents, to them, community organizing represented stability. After, oh, after really? theater and being undocumented, this was actually a step up. And they were like, okay, okay, that, that what a relief. That's, that's real work. That's great. Um, and then the funny thing is that uh, when, um, uh, when, um, uh, Senator Obama started running for president and then became President Obama. Um, suddenly, a lot more people understood community organizing because he had been a community right. organizer in Chicago, um, and, and and that was that helped a lot. That made that they probably thought that you could be the next president. I mean, actually, that <laughs> kind of or senator at least. Yeah, well, I think in their unending uh, faith and love and confidence in me uh, that is completely unconditional, I'm sure they thought uh, I was going to be the next senator of Illinois. But it tells me also that you don't care about, like money is not a motive for you. Um, I I think the most rewarding thing is when you get to change someone's life and, and there's a way that they become friends with you and family to you. You become family to each other. Um, and although uh, money hasn't been a reward, I, I think that uh, I think of myself as 
unbelievably and incredibly wealthy in these incredible relationships um, right. that I have in the world. You know, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, there aren't too many places where I'm a stranger because there's always someone um, whose life I touched or or who who I came into contact with and and that meant something and and that just turns into lifelong friendship and your life feels bigger i guess also in the process oh absolutely i learn so much um you know when i i mean the, the people in this book for example you know when i met them um i was you know when i got these phone calls these anonymous phone calls um from of all people indian men you know trapped in a labor camp in mississippi you know i was pretty estranged from india i was uh i was living in new orleans in a very at the time before katrina even though there were um you know there were well, there was a small south asian community there was a vietnamese american community but largely the culture was black and white mm-hmm. and there wasn't really uh, you know a deep um south asian or 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 asian american culture um except in pockets um i you know i was carrying a lot of guilt for uh because i you know i wasn't really sending that much money home my you know i had chosen i had chosen the only profession slightly more lucrative than theater so uh you know <laughs> other others from my street that i lived on in delhi uh were sending kids to australia and the us and these these kids were growing up and you know in the finance industry and sending money home and i wasn't doing that um and i and i felt terrible about that i was um uh you know i i i had lost my hindi to a large part it was it had deteriorated um and so so i i didn't really quite have my urdu or hindi um yeah you know as 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 much as i did when i was in delhi and so i um so i was pretty you know pretty alienated um from family and from india and the last people i expected at the center of my life were 500 men from india um but then there they were and i got these phone calls and i met them and over the course of the next 10 years they became some of the deepest relationships um that i have i got to know their childhoods and their love stories and that that was all of the basis of the book so so that's an example of just like you never know when you when you're in service of people you never know where those relationships will take you when when you met these men what was their situation oh that's a really um that's quite a story so by the way uh i i i don't want to give if there's spoilers that i'm giving away just let me know and i'll, I'll hold back so I don't know what the balance is that how much you want people to know and how much you don't want them to know. Oh, sure, sure. No, no, no. We'll guard against spoilers. Uh yeah. but what is important for people to know is um I got three phone calls from three different men. I thought you know, I imagine they all worked together. I assume they found my phone number because you know, my flyers and business cards were circulating all over the Gulf Coast. Um I would hand out flyers under the Robert E Lee statue and a worker over there would get into a bus with you know with a business card in his pocket and that worker would get out to Mississippi I imagined workers meeting workers and flyers circulating so it wasn't surprising to me that I was getting phone calls but it was incredibly astonishing that the callers were Indian workers um and so i asked if i could meet with them initially they said no because they were too scared to me um so i suggested to one of them um like could could we bump into each other accidentally you know could that be the pretext of a meeting um it turned out these workers they said they lived on company property the company company completely controlled them but they had a small narrow zone of freedom um that they um you know that they could meet with me at a place called the secret catholic church uh well they said it was in pascagoula i drove out there uh, it took a whole drive to find it it turned out in their particular english they meant 
the sacred heart Catholic church. I found it. <laughs> and, uh, and on my way there, I called up, I finally called my mother after months. And I said, look, I, I've got a big problem. I'm meeting with a few Indian men. You need to like help me prepare a speech in Hindi for them. You know, So I did my entire presentation, rehearsed it with my mom you know, in Hindi, uh, because my Hindi was like a, a car parked in a garage 10 years ago that didn't work anymore. And I got it to run. Um, and I, 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 um, um, and I reached for the door of the secret Catholic church, expecting three men and rehearsing my Hindi. And I opened the door and behind the door, there were a hundred men waiting for me from India. Wow. I was just astonished. I came in, um, I did my speech I thought it went brilliantly, this, this Hindi speech. I was so proud. It fell completely on its face. It turned out not a single one of those hundred men understood what I said. They, oh. they, they, they were all from South India. I was from North India and speaking, you know, Hindi, Urdu. And they were from South India and all they spoke was Tamil um, and, uh, and uh, Malayalam. Uh, you know, some were from Tamil Nadu. Some were from, um, uh, from Kerala. Um, there were a few men who spoke a little bit of English. And so they said, look, can you do the speech again? I did it again in English. They interpreted it in two different languages. Um, and the men asked me for help. And the thing is, I didn't have anything to offer them. So they all streamed out. I mean, these men would have listened to a Harvard-educated uh, American attorney with a law degree and a suit. I didn't even own a suit, you know. Yeah. I had on a tattered hoodie, you know, and I and I, and and I had a theater degree. So they just streamed out. But um one of those workers uh, a little bit later called me and offered me another secret meeting. Um his name was Rajan and and he and I forged a friendship and then ended up engineering the great escape in the middle of, of this book. And what, what, what these workers explained to me, what I found out was these were welders and pipe fitters who were from India. Um, this huge oil rig company had sent recruiters to India, including uh, a, a lawyer from New Orleans, um, a Mississippi cop, and, um, and a very famous Indian recruiter. Uh, who wound up becoming the the agents, the recruiters for this company. They went to India um, and they recruited hundreds of men. They promised them green cards and good jobs in America. Now, you know, you alluded earlier, uh, Hassan, to uh, workers in Dubai and, and the Middle East. I mean, these are exactly the workers who would go months or years at a time to the Middle East to earn money, you know, because... They couldn't possibly earn enough in India uh, to afford their parents' retirement or the house that they wanted to build for their uh, parents. Um, you know, they would get married and then leave soon after their weddings to go to the Middle East. Um, these were migrant workers um, who were from India. And for a migrant worker like that, a green card is the holy grail. I mean, mm -hmm. and here were these recruiters, not just a recruiter from India, but a, a an attorney from the United States who came and said, okay, we're going to get you green cards and good jobs. Um, you'll come to the United States, you'll work for this oil rig builder. And in nine months, not only will you have a green card, but your family will join you, your wife and children uh, will join you. And this was an incredible promise. You know, um, the only catch was that the men would have to pay $20,000 a piece. Now, $20,000 at that time in India, particularly in India, that's like half a million dollars. You know, it's an enormous amount of money. Yeah. Um, and the men nonetheless thought, well, like if this is a chance, and one of the workers, as he put it later, this was a chance uh, to live with the family you love and provide for them. No wow. Indian worker gets that chance, right? No Indian worker gets that chance. I mean, as one of the workers put it to me, um, the rules of life for a migrant worker, it, you know, the rule of life is um, you 
leave the ones you love to help them live, right? Your life wow. is this impossible wow. choice, right? Do you love the people? Do you live with the people you love or do you provide for them? And of course, everybody chooses, you know, providing for them. A, a good, uh, you know, a, 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 a good son is one who provides for his parents. A good husband, a good brother is one who provides, right? And so, and so you leave. And so to these workers, they thought this was an opportunity to, to, to provide for the family you love and live with them. Something we take for granted in North America, in Canada and the West, you know, they did not. And so they raised the money. They sold ancestral land. Um, They, um, you know, they put their homes up for sale. Their parents sold their homes. Um, the ones who were married uh, sold their wives' jewelry. You know, uh, their in-laws sold their homes in many cases to raise all this money that they thought they would get back in a matter of six to nine months. They came to the U.S. and then they found out that all the promises were false. There were never any green cards. They were there on temporary visas. They were working round-the-clock shifts behind barbed wire fences for this Mississippi oil rig builder. They were living in labor camps, 24 people to a trailer, 24 men to a trailer living in labor camps um, on company property that they could not leave. Um, They were surveilled by guards um, and they were eating frozen rice for food. Uh, They had had awful uh, food on site and they were doing back-breaking labor, but all they had to eat was frozen rice. And not only had they paid the $20,000, which they were not getting back, um, for green cards that didn't exist, not only were they living in a labor camp, but they were charged $1,000 a month for rent for living on this labor camp. Those were the conditions I found. Uh, them in when I met them. But, you know, Hassan, the, the interesting thing was on top of all that, the deepest indignities were the ones I couldn't see. It was when I got to know the workers that that I that I really understood the deeper indignities um, that these workers faced. Wow. I would assume that since they're Indian and they're Indian, that was enough for them, for, for you to get their trust. But it doesn't seem that way. How did you get their trust? You know, I love how Indian cooking played such a big part in this. Yes, uh, cooking was a big part. I mean, actually, um, the fact that I was an Indian was at first held against me. Uh, yeah, they they really wanted uh, an American they could trust. And that for that you know that translated for them into a a tall white American lawyer with a briefcase and a proper suit. It was the furthest thing from what I, what I was. But I won their trust um, in part through my friendship with one worker uh, named Rajan. Um, he reached out to me secretly and he said, okay, I've thought about what you've said. Let's meet. So I met with him um, at the secret Catholic church. Uh, we had a clandestine meeting and I explained that these, these green cards were not coming, that the company was lying, and that by then the visas had expired. So all of these men, 500 of them, were now undocumented. Rajan listened very carefully. He, he wanted to know, what do we do? So I explained the strategy. I explained that, you know, what Rajan and many of these other men were used to was going on strike, you know? I mean, some of these men had gone on strikes before. They had, in fact, uh, been a a, a small day-long strike at this company because um, the company found out that a few people had met with me and were working with me. Um, And the company sent armed guards into the labor camp to pull those workers, my allies, out of bed uh, in a pre-dawn raid, uh, and and um, attempted to deport them. So all of this had happened, you know, um, before Rajan reached out to me, and he wanted to give me an audience. And he wanted to kind of ask me what, you know, what could they do? 
And I explained that what they could do was escape from the company in the middle of the night, 500 people, 500 yeah. brown men escaping in the middle of the night um, somehow, right? And then we could, um, we could um, uh, uh, file a complaint, a criminal complaint against the company with the Department of Justice. The crime was human trafficking. We would allege uh, that the company had trafficked all of these workers, uh, which I believe to be the case, um, and that that would trigger certain protections. Um, even if the workers were undocumented, um, the Justice Department, we believed, uh, would come in, investigate, and while it was investigated, protect these men with, uh, with legal status. And so the question, of course, was how would the men escape? And um, and Rajan and I set out to engineer this great escape. And at the center of it was food. You know, when I met Rajan, I couldn't boil an egg. I didn't know how to boil rice. You know, um, are you a cook, uh, Esan? Uh, no, I'm not, unfortunately. Ah, well, we got to work my, on that. My wife so, is. Yeah, I'm working on it. We're we're gonna we're gonna work on that. So so yeah, that that's that's how I was. You know, I, I didn't cook. I didn't know anything about it. And Rajan explained that I needed to bring him Indian ingredients. He gave me a long list, things I had never heard of, never heard of. I went to an Indian market. I bought them all. I didn't question Rajan by this point. I knew that I knew that he needed, you know, he I knew that he needed these ingredients for some reason. And I smuggled them into the labor camp. So suddenly he had these ingredients. Um, he took over the cafeteria and he cooked a meal. You know, these men who had been eating only frozen rice and sometimes stale bread and pizza suddenly got a beautiful Indian meal. And Rajan was an extraordinary cook and he cooked a simple but incredible Indian meal of dal, you know, yellow dal with mustard mm-hmm. seeds, um, you know, the kind of yellow dal that has fried mustard seeds and onions uh, swimming in it. To give it a kind of scent and 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 flavor, the um, you know that 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 kind of dal, uh, dal with what what we call tarka, which is this kind of roasted cumin or roasted mustard seed scent, uh, along with onions that comes through it. He cooked that dal, and so these men woke up from their labor camps one morning with the mouth-watering scent of tarka, you know, uh, flowing through the air. They came came out and. And that's what they ate that morning, um, along with real rice. I had parboiled rice at Rajan's request, uh, which means, you know, cooking it only up to a certain point before smuggling it over to him. He was able to cook it the rest of the way. And so these men were eating rice. And um, and that's how Rajan, Rajan kind of brought them back from a catatonic state of hopelessness and despair about their future. Um, he he woke them up, you know, out of a trance, out of a, a a trance of 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 loss and 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 you know a destitute trance. And he woke them up, and he said, "Look, we could stay here in the labor camp, or there's a guy outside named Saket who has a different way." And so then, um, Rajan and I started to figure out a way. You know, he had to ferry the workers out so that I could explain their rights and explain the strategy and sign them up for a big case against um, against the company, a, a huge DO, you know, Department of Justice complaint. Um, so I don't want to give too much away, but that's where the great escape started. And it involved lots and lots of wild turkey whiskey as bride <laughs> guards. <laughs> it's this awful like little mini bar bottles of whiskey, you know, and lots of um, horrible, horrible flavored cigars, the kind you find at Mississippi gas stations. Um, and so those were the bribes for the guards. And, you know, Rajan became their best friend. Um, we ferried the men out. Then we needed a way to get them out altogether, you know, all in one night. And we came up with um, an elaborate but completely fictitious Indian wedding as a pretext. Um, we, we, we would talk in code about the wedding. The wedding was always the the escape. 
Um, and we convinced the guards, some of the company officials, a hotel owner, um, that the men needed to attend a wedding party. And that's how we got them out. And 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 so, um, yeah, again, I don't want to give too much away, but this was, you know, the, 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 there were, you know, the company had moles. There were, you know, um, there were all kinds of infiltrators that we had to duck and weave around. Um, but we eventually... Um, did get the men out and um, and filed a DOJ complaint, thinking that the DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice, would just launch an investigation in days or a week. Well, we had 500 Indian men hiding in a hotel in New Orleans, but the Department of Justice never came. Um, and so we set out on a march from New Orleans to Washington, D.C., uh, through vast stretches of Georgia, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, uh, the Carolinas, all the way to Washington, um, it, it was this. It was this kind of bold, brave. You know, in the in the in the footsteps of Gandhi, a bold, brave move. Um, what we didn't know was, though, that deep inside the federal government, there were um, um, there were agents, uh, government agents. Um, who were who had their own nefarious um, intentions and their own corrupt ties to the company, uh, and that those agents were uh, were at work, um, you know, uh, undermining our plans. We we had no idea. All we knew was we needed to march, and each step of the way, I needed to win deeper and deeper trust uh, with the workers. And each step of the of the way, you're right, it involved food. In fact, we got to. We got to Washington D.C. and um, and we, you know, um, we were talking to every single lawmaker we could find, and we got to the point where where you know we started to sense that even people who agreed with us were backing away. They didn't quite want to be seen with us in Washington. Uh, Democratic lawmakers who were really with us in the beginning were starting to inch away, and we didn't know why. Um, it turned out that that the Department of Justice was was getting a lot of pushback and starting to resist. And even that problem we solved with food. Rajan and I met and he made a mouthwatering meal. I mean, basically, you know, every friendship, you know, has its traditions. His and my friendship had gotten really deep and our ritual was food. Every time we had a problem, we solved it with food. Sometimes when the problems were so, were small, we went to a food truck when it was a kind of a, you know, a, a medium-sized problem or, or a slightly bigger one. We went to eat Ethiopian food together and we solved problems by eating and thinking. But the resistance of the Department of Justice, the fact that they were not still not investigating our case and now telling lawmakers that maybe we didn't have as strong of a case as we thought, that was the biggest problem yet. And, uh, and so Rajan made the biggest meal yet. It was this unbelievable one pot meal with 22 spices that I, that I ran out for. All these spices went into a pot. Rice went into the pot. Um, chicken went in and the lid went on. And Rajan was sort of stirring a spatula and, and kind of, um, you know, uh, pulling steam towards him with a big spatula, steam coming out of his pot in a little uh, basement kitchen in Washington, D.C. He looked like an orchestra conductor in the whole kitchen and probably that whole street smelled of these spices, <laughs> you know, and this rice and chicken came out. He had made this dish uh, that he had learned to make in um, in Baku, you know, in a, in a labor camp in, in Azerbaijan. Um, it was called al-kabza. Al-kabza is, is a Bedouin dish. And we ate it um, and we were, it was so delicious that, that we fell into a trance. Um, and, and while we were in that trance, we realized what the solution was, um, that we had hit a huge impasse in Washington. For some reason, uh, Democrats and our allies uh, and the Department of Justice were backing away. We needed an assertion of of, of our moral, you know, righteous claim for justice. And, and, and the answer 
was right in front of us. It was food. We decided to go on a hunger strike. Um, and that was the next step we took after, after the escape and the march to Washington. The next big action uh, was uh, a hunger strike that one man actually stayed on for over 20 days. Wow, that's a, that's a lot to process. Um, when I was reading the book, I assumed that once these guys are out of jail, that's when the story ends. You know, that's, yeah, that's very yeah. simple, right? But all of a sudden, it's it's probably the escape is probably the easy part compared to everything else that comes after. Is that is that a representative of, of the of the government in America, or was that like a one time case? Like, is that how America works, or was yours just like a like a special once in a lifetime kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I certainly expected that the great escape would be the end of the story that we'd yeah. escape, you know, we would help these workers escape and the justice department would come in and start an investigation. And once they started an investigation that would trigger these protections, the department of justice has the power, even when workers are undocumented, um, if they're witnesses and victims, uh, witnesses to human trafficking and victims of human trafficking, um, that the Justice Department has the power to give them temporary status that comes with work permits, you know. And remember, these men were still in debt back home in India. They had taken enormous loans from violent moneylenders who were now circling their families, yeah. um, you know, and demanding repayment with interest, not just a small interest, by the way, 17, 18% interest loans, you know, that were piling up. The families were being threatened. They were under pressure. Um, wives were calling husbands. Parents were calling sons, you know, and saying, where's the money? Why aren't you sending us money? And 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 these men were saying, well, well, we're not working. We've escaped from the labor camp and we're undocumented and we're marching to Washington for justice. And the families would say, you're what? You're what are you doing? You know? Um, we need we need to send us money. So we thought that um, once the Department of Justice's temporary protections came through, the men would get back to work, you know, and be able to alleviate some of their stress. Well, weeks went by, then months went by. No answer from the Department of Justice. Then we found out the terrible, terrible secret, which was... Um, that there were uh, nefarious agents inside the government, um, immigration agents, basically, you know, agents of immigration and customs enforcement, which I is see. the uh, yeah ICE or ICE. It's it's the it's the agency of immigration cops, and there were these immigration cops who were um, who had, without again, no spoilers, uh, so I don't want to say too much. But yeah. they had deep corrupt ties to the company and were unraveling our investigation. Um, we first found this out when um, an immigration agent dressed up as a construction worker um, in the back of a van that was dressed up as a as as a construction company van um, was surveilling the workers on our civil rights march. We we you know outed this guy as as an immigration agent in Alabama and learned of this. The men, by the way, never dreamed of anything like this because, you know, they're from India. They come to the U.S. Sure, they've been enslaved by an American corporation, but that's mm -hmm. a corporation. They had deep faith in the systems of America, in the government in America. I mean, honestly, Hazan, they had deeper faith in America than most people born in America, you know? Um, and they would tell me, well, it's right there in the name. In their English, they would call the DOJ, the Department of Justice. They would call it the Department for Justice. And so they'd say, it's right there in the name. It's the Department for Justice. All we have to go is do is walk over there. <laughs> and once we're at their doorstep, doors will open and they'll give us justice because it's in the name. And my job at that point was to explain to them that it is a lot more complicated than that. Generations of people in the United States have had to fight for justice. Yes, the law is the law and the law protects you. Um, but 
the reality is that you really have to fight for rights that you're already owed under the law. Um, and one thing that helped me was I had a lot of African-American mentors who were older, uh, who were organizers from the South. Um, they, they had been through this. You know, they 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 were no strangers uh, to, uh, you know, to the difficulty of getting rights that are already guaranteed to you under the law. Um, right. And so when we started our march, you know, they really explained to the men um, that that they had to that, you know, that these men had to understand their opposition. Well, we we got to D.C. Um, and it was uh, with a great shock that we understood the reason that the Department of Justice wasn't investigating months into our escape, into the men's escape from the labor camp. Uh, the reason they weren't investigating was because of these nefarious government agents with their own secret ties to the company. Wow, that's it's crazy. It's like a movie. It it it, it was like living in a movie uh, for for uh, uh, many years, and then in the writing of it, it was I learned that it was even more like a movie because each of these men had these incredible love stories. You know, these were. Yes. Uh, these were these beautiful characters who, uh, you know, there's this gentleman named Haymonth, for example. Haymonth was from Delhi, like I was. He was a 20-something. And the reason he came to America was because he wanted to marry his high school sweetheart. And God, what, what could be more like a movie than that? You want to marry your high school sweetheart. You want what he called, what we all call a love marriage, you know. Yeah. And the problem is that his high school sweetheart was from in Indian society was from a place that was several rungs above him in yeah. station, you know, in, in class and caste. And so um, and so to win his high school sweetheart's hand in marriage, he visited. He was terrified and he visited uh, her father and her father said, sure, I mean, go become somebody. And when you do, we can talk about you marrying my daughter. But first, go become somebody. And Haman thought, well, I, I can't become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. But wait, here's this ad in the paper. I can become something even better. I can become an American. So then he convinced his dad to uh, empty his pension, sell the house, take loans, and raise all this money to 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 give to the recruiters. Um, there's another man um, named Ebi Raju. Uh, Ebi uh, was, he had just returned from five years in Bahrain uh, at the start of the story. And um, he, you know, he he was young. He, he wanted to go back to work. He wanted to kind of have a life, a young life. But his mother uh, wanted an arranged marriage. His mother was dragging him, kicking and screaming into this arranged marriage that she wanted. She had found him a bride, but he didn't want to get married. He was he was just resisting until he accidentally talked to the woman his mother had chosen on the phone. And just, just by hearing her voice, he fell in love with her, you know? And now he wanted the marriage. The wedding happened. Well, Ebby left soon after the wedding his wife was pregnant when he left. Ebby thought he would meet his wife again in nine months and his just born son uh, would, you know, would be with her nine months from now. That's what- In America. In America, right? He would, Ebby thought he would leave for America right after the wedding. His wife, you know, according to the recruiter's promise, would join him in nine months when his son was right about then you know, maybe a month old, just just born, right? Um, well, it turned out that Ebby did not see his wife for another three years and didn't hold his son um, for another three years. Um, the first time Ebby met his son, his son was three years old. So those were the, the origin stories of these workers, these men. And, uh, and that, yeah, that's also just so, so much like a movie. I mean, all these love stories, yeah. Um, center of the book. And, you know, in, in, in truth, I always think, um, you know, every, um, every immigration story is a love story because every immigrant story uh, is really about 
doing something for love, a journey you take for love. And it's it's about separation and one hopes about reunion. Not every immigrant love story ends with reunion, uh, but this one does. One of the one of the coolest things about the book is that you know usually the classic immigrant story starts with um, when my father came to this country or when my mom came to this country. It always starts out like when they arrive, but in your book we get to see the story starts from 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 India from back home with with their girlfriends and their and their love lives and their family lives and the story starts from there and then it continues on and these are hundreds of people with hundreds of dreams and goals and and longings and 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 uh and the need for a better life and we were talking about how life for you is so stressful you're you're in charge of 500 you're in charge of hundreds of hundreds of Indians in in America you you're like the father figure you're the leader they look up to you to me i mean that's that's insane that must be like panic attacks anxiety uh so much distress like you know when you agreed to this were you, or how did you know you were up for that you know well uh you know what was most stressful about it was that i had my own secret in the middle of all of this which was that my own immigration status was tenuous you know i needed to be well, firstly i needed to win over the trust of the workers i did that with great difficulty you know i used every possible thing i could uh you know to win those workers over get them to trust me but then they trusted me which meant you know and and their their future in america now depended on me they were putting all their faith and 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 the dreams of their uh, of their families in my hands and that means i needed to be stable for them well the truth is yeah. i was anything but you know my own immigration status um was hanging by a thread and and that's connected to my own love story you know which is also at the center of the book and and that was all very complicated i was you know uh, my future in the united states my immigration future was absolutely insecure it was connected to a very fraught love story that was right in the middle of the book that i was navigating um and i didn't know uh if i was going to be able to stay in the united states and if i left you know then these workers would have no advocate in the united states nobody uh you know uh, eating sleeping waking um thinking of them working for them every hour and uh and that was the most stressful part i think uh you know i think in the middle of it all um when when we were on the road from new orleans to washington um marching marching for 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 uh the you know over two weeks from new orleans to Wa- 14 days actually from new orleans to washington um i would um i would just walk with this sense you know i looked brave i i looked like i was in command you know but i would walk with the sense of complete dread and fear because what if we got to washington and then soon afterwards uh the axe came down on me and my own immigration status you know uh yeah ended you know ended i mean what if uh, what if the application that was pending was that i had pending the application that i had you know not even been able to send because because i was too busy with this campaign what if once i sent it you know it was it was rejected then the men would have nobody that was that was one of the one of the most stressful things i had been on, on, undocumented already and i knew the pressures that come on you when you're undocumented and these men were carrying the hope not only hopes and dreams of their families but these incredible debts from the from the money they had borrowed so their pressures were enormous and i would see the way they were on the phone marching to washington in a single file uh, against the sunset you know sun is setting so it's getting to be dusk in america but families are work, waking up really early in india you know children waking up to go to school um you know uh, uh you, you know uh you know relatives waking up 
to do the laundry or get ready to, to work uh, in the farm. And these men would have their small little cell phones pressed to their ears, talking to these relatives 10,000 miles away. Um, and they would say, don't worry, there's a man here named Saket Sonian. He's helping us. And I've got faith in him. I've got confidence. You know, the men would build up confidence by evoking my name, by invoking my name, right? And all the while I was thinking, wow, what if I'm not here a month from now? Um, that was really the most stressful thing. You know, to do what you do, I imagine you have to be someone very hopeful and optimistic. And there's this beautiful passage you write about how American America and Americans forget and make the same mistakes and cause the same harm over and over into cycle. And recently, uh, I read that Joe Biden might bring back Trump's old migrant uh, policies, detention policies. And that must take, I mean, for me, it takes away hope, some hope. And I wonder if that does the same for you. And to you, does it feel like things are getting better or they're not getting better? Or well, do you do you still continue to have hope? Well, I think to me, hope is an action. You know, hope is not a mood. Uh, hope isn't um, a um, hope isn't a uh, you know dream, a, a dream or 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 um, or something you feel uh, just because uh, you read something inspiring. Um, hope is the possibility that even in the midst of reality there's an action you can take, something you can do. So hope really starts with the question, what can I do? You know, what can I do? Um, hope isn't a, um, hope is not a, a kind of uh, looking at reality with rose-colored glasses and saying, it's not that bad. You know, hope starts with a very brave confrontation of reality. Um, hope starts by saying, well, this, this is real. You know, this is what's happening to us. This is what, what the world is right now, but what can I do? That's a fundamentally hopeful question. And so, you know, uh, in, in this book, in this story, the first thing I asked was when I, when I, when the first man called me, I thought, okay, what can I do? Well, I can find him. I can convince him to meet with me. And, and that was a hopeful action. You know, um, we now in the world have so many crises, right? I mean, you have Trumpism even after Trump. Um, yeah. You have, you know, you have um, attacks on the environment and, and you've got fossil fuel companies, you know, um, you've got, uh, people profiting from other people's misery, you know, um, and and if you just take account of all the terrible things that are happening, it can make you feel somehow that you know you're too small, you know you're too small to do anything about it. But the hopeful way to engage with that is to say, okay, what can I do? And then the next thing to, to say is well, I can't do anything by myself. So let me join with somebody. Let me reach out to somebody. Let me, let me stop become, being an individual and be part of a group. Um, and, and that's always to me where hope comes from, uh, where, you, where you stop being alone. You decide you're not going to uh, uh, go through this alone, but you want to do something and you, you connect with somebody. There's, a, um, there's a, a, an author I really admire named Rebecca Solnit. Um, who writes about hope. And she has this book um, called Hope in the Dark. Uh, and, and, um, and, and that's the, uh, I think the way I think about hope is, is really shaped by a lot of what she's written, which is, um, which is really about, um, you, you know, it, it's not about, um, it's not about pretending that there isn't darkness. It, it's the light you turn on um, that provides hope. So, so that's, you know, that's my, that's the way I go through the world. I, I think that a lot of people right now um, feel a lot of despair. And the only time they're ever given anything to do is during elections, but elections don't happen every day, right? right. You can't pick someone out of office 
every day, but you can every day join with someone, join a club, join a group, um, you know, connect with someone um, and and figure out what you can do right where you are uh, about the thing that's bothering you. That's that's beautifully said. My last question is, and uh, we'll go full circle here. How your parents feel about you now with a book and and your story being out there? Oh, my parents are incredibly proud, incredibly proud. My uh, my mother um, has um, um, my mother in recent years has reconnected with a lot of her friends from high school from from many many years ago. Uh, you know that was a while. It's been a it's been a while since my mom graduated from high school. But yeah, uh, but but she's uh, recently reconnected with all these high school buddies of hers, and they've got a WhatsApp group, and um and and she has been my number one publicist. I, I That's think a good, so funny. A, a good hilarious. portion of my sales <laughs> have been. <laughs> Through WhatsApp uh, to her <laughs> friends and their friends and their relatives and their friends of friends, uh, my 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 dad similarly has been just incredibly proud. My parents are also very powerful readers, um, so they read. You know, they were the first to read the finished manuscript. Um, they and they're in the book. They're in the story. So they're like, yeah, they they're in the book. And yeah, that was interesting. You know, I I kind of let them know, hey, listen, you're in the book. And they were like, okay. What, why are we in the book? We don't need to be in the book. And I said, no, 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 you, you don't worry about it. You, you come off really well, but you, you need to be in the book, you know? And, and they, 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 they let me, which was incredibly generous. They, they let me be in the book. And, and it was important because my relationship with them and the way I started out estranged from India and from them. And I, through my relationships with these men, in a way I came home, that story was so important for me to tell. And so I had to have them in the book. Um, and they were they 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 treated it initially with trepidation, um, but I think then they they embraced it. My 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 dad did say to me after reading it, you know, we we could have been there less. I mean, you you didn't need <sighs> as much as, as you have us, but no, they they were really thrilled and they're very proud. And I'm I'm so grateful. I'm I'm so happy that that worked out for you. It, uh, you definitely deserve it. I I love the book. How you recommend well, it? So thank you. I have a question for you before you sure, open. What, what's sure, your sure. favorite Indian food or, or Pakistani? What's your favorite South Asian food? My favorite South Asian food is biryani. Biryani. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's great. So so I'm going to send you the recipe for al-kabza, which is in the book. Yes, it is. It is basically a Bedouin version of biryani. Oh, oh, perfect. Um, and it's absolutely mouthwatering. Are and you cooking? Do you I, cook I, now? Oh, I cook all the time. Yeah, Rajan, the, the two people who taught me how to cook are, uh, well, the three people really is, uh, are, are Rajan first, uh, and then my mom and my my uncle, all three incredible cooks in, in, in my life. So, so yes, I cook a lot now, yeah. That's, that's so awesome. I need, to, I need to get on that. Um, it's it's not as hard as you think. I, I think it's very hard. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very, very difficult. I just don't have the... You know, people can be like, oh, this is too much salt or this is too much sugar by tasting it or by feeling it. I can't do that. To me, I need like mathematical like quantities. Sure. And I, I just don't have that. I'm not. Well, that's I just the process. <laughs> <laughs> um, does the book help you get, you know, one of the issues? I mean, I know uh, one more question. Um, one of the issues was that you we, you couldn't get the attention of the government or the right people. Does this book give you credibility now and make your job easier now? Well, one overwhelming thing about the book being out in the world is I'm astonished by how many people from all walks of life, including people in government, have reached out to me and said, thank you for telling the story. And I, and I think that, um, you know, I think it's an indication that, that um, there's just a hunger for these stories. There's a hunger for real immigrant stories that are not just the news, the news where something bad happens to an immigrant or uh, some politician is demagoguing immigrants. Um, I think there's a hunger for uh, stories of people who are immigrants, complex people, um, Mm -hmm. people who start in their home countries. They're not born as immigrants who come all the way uh, to the US or Canada or wherever. And they're trying to live complex lives and full lives. 
Um, and, um, and, you know, when you're in government, a lot of people got to government because of stories like these, right? A lot of people got to government um, to do the right thing because there were people like these in their own lives, relatives, friends, you know, no one, no one goes to government just to work on an issue. And the mm-hmm. job is too hard, uh, you know, to, to, to go for anything other than deep personal reasons. Um, many, many people toiling away at the Department of Justice or, uh, you know, inside other parts of government, uh, they go there because they were idealists. They wanted to make a difference. And they saw some level of injustice somewhere. Um, a story of a real person made them go. And people like that have uh, have been calling and saying thank you. And that's that's incredibly moving. Yeah. So this book has has helped a lot in that way. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about the book. I have a really big platform. So if you ever need any uh support for a cause or or fundraising or or you need to let the news out please don't hesitate to let me know thank i would you, love, to, I would so love to help you out i'm you're like i'm your mom's your biggest fan but i'm like number two in there oh, that's great thank you thank you so much i love um the conversations uh uh you you um you have by the way uh, you know a lot of a lot of times um conversations are too short to go deep. But for example, I really love listening to your conversation with Mira Nair. She's just like one of my, one of my storytelling heroes. And just an example of an amazing interview. So please keep doing it. Please keep doing it. Okay. I, Thank I you so much.